We're going to begin with Matthew chapter 13 and go to the end. Last week, we looked at the two parables right before this. There was a shift from the first four parables that were spoken outside to a smaller group that went inside and they asked Jesus questions. He explained the parables. He explained the symbolism and still said some uniquely and deeply profound things. Really recognizing again that as he spoke in parables, he was not speaking children's stories. He was teaching some of the deepest and most profound things that he could possibly teach. Because every one of these begins with the kingdom of heaven is like. You see, the people that he's speaking to had nothing to conceptually draw from. They had no point of reference. What's he even speaking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? So you understand he's talking to people in terms that they could understand, but symbolism was absolutely necessary so that they could grasp the picture. So last week we talked about the fifth of these parables where there was a man walking in a field. He finds a treasure. He goes and sells all that he has. And we notice that he doesn't take the treasure or buy the treasure. He has to take the field. Well, we understand that we went through the scripture back in Exodus, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, that what is being described here, what Jesus is talking about, is the fact that, that Israel is that treasure. He came to Israel. It says he came unto his own, and his own wouldn't have him. It says throughout the scripture that he, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek, or to the Gentile. So again, we understand the order that he's establishing. But we also know that Israel rejected him, so the treasure stayed in the field. And that's exactly where they are today. The church age that we live is unique in the fact that what Israel was supposed to do, the people they were supposed to be, the witness that that God asked them to be, giving them the oracles of God in the Old Testament, giving them the instruction, making his presence by the Spirit available to them, But they said no. So the work that they were supposed to accomplish is now being accomplished by the church. Please remember, we're not the replacement for Israel. We're simply a, a branch that is grafted in. We're drawing from the same root. What was going to sustain them is now sustaining us. So we can't look at Israel and dismiss them because we are grafted in to that as a branch onto that tree. Israel said no, so the next parable is the parable of the great pearl, and I went through the symbolism of that last week, very specifically, he's talking about from Matthew 21, 43, where he says to Israel, I'm basically going to establish a nation that's never been a nation, so that they will produce the fruit that you have refused to produce. So we know that the pearl is talking to us about the church, it speaks about us. And I wish we would take the symbolism to heart, especially in the fact that he chose the pearl for a particular reason, clearly so that he could distinguish it from Israel because Israel won't use pearls in anything ornamental because they believe it to be unclean. The way it was formed in the muck and the mire of the ocean, they consider it unclean. It's only used one time. The word's only used one time in the Old Testament, and the Hebrew word is actually quartz and not a pearl. So a clear separation saying, I'm going to do something unique and distinctly different from the treasure 
I'm going to speak of the church as a pearl. The pearl gets more lustrous as it's rubbed or used, but its value goes to zero if it's split. It's not like a diamond. If you split a pearl, it becomes of no value. I wish we would take that to heart. One of those things that we've been taught and taught very well now is that you know, Satan has come to kill, which creates fear. He came to steal, which creates doubt. And he came to destroy, which creates pride. And how easily we play into that. How easily we're divided. How easily we're offended. How easily we're separated. We stand in our pride and say, I'm right and you're wrong. In our judgments, we make conclusions. And unfortunately, there is tremendous division with what God says should never be divided. One of these days when God prompts me the right time, I'm going to have a conversation, with a very serious one, with this church about what happens when we maintain a denominational line. I have the questions now, but it's difficult for me. This is just personal. I don't know if it, it may not be difficult to you at all. But coming to the realization that Satan creates the division, and then we tolerate the division, that doesn't settle well with me. I don't know the answer to this completely. I, there's pieces that God gives me, but I also know that the timing of this is critically important because if you bring up this topic and it causes more division, then I understand that the Spirit of God didn't do it. He didn't move. I moved ahead of him, and I have no desire to do that. So the timing of that is very much him. I know where my heart stands, but I have been patiently waiting for him to give that direction. Someday he'll address it because it's amazing how much pride there is according to denominational lines. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, the amount of pride associated with the denomination that we belong to. Uh, because we're the biggest, because we give the most, because we have the most missionaries, whatever it happens to be, we can become very pride-filled about it. We know the source of it, so we have to be cautious. But the pearl was paid for. He sold all that he had. He bought the pearl, and he took it with him. So again, we understand he's talking about a chronology. He came to the Jews and they said no. He came to the pearl and he bought it. And he took it with him. So we understand we've gone now from a picture of Israel and their rejection to the church and its acceptance. You won't be able to look in commentaries and find that. I know a few people who teach it. What I teach about these passages isn't what Dale taught. Because Dale made everything, I'm not going to even challenge that he was right. It's just not what's on my heart. Dale took each one of these scriptures and he made them relevant to the millennial reign. Talking about what was going to happen in those thousand years. I just don't get that. He came to Israel and said, they said no. He's established the church and the church is accepted being the branches grafted in. The next parable that we're going to look at, I can't put at the end of the millennial reign like many teachers do who teach this. Many don't even approach this topic this way. This is one of those where very likely I may just stand alone in what I believe this says. If I do, that's perfectly okay. The Lord will correct me or teach me or will bring affirmation. So we're at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net. Now this net was a 
Sane, I believe is what you call it. It's the largest of the nets that was moved across big areas of water. It's like unto a great net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The better translation is, so as it shall be at the end of the age. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. So here's the strangeness of that parable. Because of the context, because of the words that are used in it, it's simple to rationalize by saying he's speaking of a time when saved and lost are separated. And I don't even disagree with that. To me, this speaks very well of, of Matthew chapter 25 in the separating of the sheep and goats. I teach, believe, that these two parables are describing same or similar things. Matthew chapter 25, I'll begin reading with verse 31. Notice we have to get the context right. The context here is critical, it's everything. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. So when does that happen? He says, what, it, what I'm fixing to tell you happens at a particular time when the Son of Man comes in his glory. When is that time? We're living now in the church age. Would we say that Jesus' first coming, his first advent, was when he came in glory? No, because he was crucified. There was no great turn in the world. There was no great victory in the world, though the victory was established. There was no great outpouring in the world at the time. So it began the church age with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The next thing that we teach according to the seven feasts, the next thing that's coming is, is the Feast of Trumpets. So we understand that the next great move of God will be the rapture when the trumpet blast comes and the dead in Christ shall be taken. And again, if you believe something different about this, that's perfectly okay. I mean, there's a dozen versions. This just happens to be according to the feast and other things, what I believe happens. Again, I know it stands in sharp contrast to other people's teaching, but that's okay. One of these days we'll know exactly what he meant because we'll be there to ask him. It won't matter. I teach that the rapture's next because the church age, the purpose of the church for which we were established, the bearing of the fruit that Israel was supposed to, t to bear, will have been accomplished. The, the need for the church in the tr following seven years, I can't find in Scripture. If you go to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 describes 490 years, 77, 70 Shabuah that is committed to Israel, 490 years. From when that started to the coming of Messiah the Prince, is, is, you can count it, 483 years, leaving a balance of seven years. That seven years, between year 483 and year 484, sandwiched in between those two years, is the church age. When God starts dealing with Israel again, he'll deal with them in the remaining seven years to turn their hearts to him, to convince them, to show them that he is the Messiah so they will trust Jesus in the truth of who he really is. But when he, at the rapture, the uniqueness of it is that Jesus doesn't come to the earth. 
It doesn't describe him coming to the earth. There's a trumpet blast, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those of us who are alive and remain, if it happens to be soon, will join them. That's scripturally established. I don't need to go back and, and state that again or show that again. So then when does Jesus come in his glory? He didn't do it at the rapture. When will he come as king of kings and lord of lords? At the end of the seven years. So we know now from context, he came to Israel and they said no. He established the church. Now there's something unique happening in these seven years. I believe this dragnet is describing what he's fixing to say in Matthew chapter 25. Let's keep reading. And the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. So, again, we begin to get a real clear picture of Revelation 19. Then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, Jesus will take the throne in the city city of David in Jerusalem, and he will rule the earth as king, literal king. So that's established. Verse 32, and before him shall be gathered all nations. Can you see the connection? Can you see the dragnet cast into the sea you know, to do this? And before him shall gather all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Now notice again, Jesus came with all of his angels, and now there's this great separation. Verse 33, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on the right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Please notice, if this is referring to Jesus coming in his glory at the end of the tribulation, this has nothing, nothing to do with you and me. Now, again, if you believe that we're going to be here during the tribulation, I'll say that differently. But if you believe that the rapture takes the church out of the way, just as Noah and his family righteously were taken out of the way before the destruction came, the rain came, then it's not hard to understand that we too would be taken out of the way. But if we're taken out of the way and this is happening... We're not these good sheep. We're not the ones separated on the right. Who are they? Who's he talking about? It's not just Jew. If you go into the book of Revelation, I think it's Revelation 12. I could be mistaken, but I think it's the end of Revelation 12. When there's a question asked, it says, who are these? Who are these saints? Who are these people of God? We understand these are the people who were saved during the Great Tribulation. Absolutely. Again, there's so much teaching about this, I can't create all the differences tonight. But there will be those who are saved in the Great Tribulation. And one of the things, the evidence of that, is that they won't take the mark of the beast. Because this teaching isn't very solid in our gospel world. Let's read it. Verse 34 again. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, whence did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? 
When do we see you a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. If we were going to teach that as gospel salvation today, then salvation would come to us based on the way we treated each other. Because that's what this is teaching. You're saved here because of how you treated someone. It doesn't mention faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mention the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mention what you and I would strongly focus on right now and say, this is salvation. It doesn't do that. The strong connection here is the reason that you're saved is because these are the things that you did. If we went to Revelation 12, here's what we would find. We would find a message about how 12,000 were pulled from each of the tribes of Israel. 144,000 witnesses. 144,000 Jewish evangelists on the face of the earth teaching and preaching Jesus the Messiah. Guess where those 144,000 are going to find themselves? In prison. And hungry. And naked. This is saying how you respond, how you receive the message of these 144,000. And again, this is much further than maybe you can go in your belief. But... In the first 483 years, the relationship between God and Israel was that God would come upon his people with the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have an indwelling spirit. He gave it to them. They they said no to that. So the last seven years, God's going to deal with Israel based on the same premise, working by the Holy Spirit coming upon them, but they won't have an indwelling spirit. That indwelling spirit left with us because he says we will ne- he will never leave us he'll never forsake us if i'm leaving as a church he's going and he will deal with israel as an external spirit as he did in the first 483 years he'll do the same in the last seven how he sends the message how he tells them about jesus how he gives them the, the word of the messiah they're going to have to make a decision am i going to accept that because the minute i accept it There's a good chance I'm going to be killed. I will be destroyed by the Antichrist. My understanding, my teaching, is how the great net and the great separation will occur is being given very precisely here to say how you treat anyone, particularly the 144,000 Jews that are preaching and teaching Jesus the Messiah is going to determine whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left. Because he goes on and he shares some more. In verse 40, and the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, insomuch as you've done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Verse 41, then shall he say unto them on the left, the goats, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know now, he's not talking about a variation of Christian faithfulness. He's not talking about a good Christian versus one that is self-absorbed. I mean, we're not talking delineation in the Christian world. We're talking about clearly lost in sight. And because of the order he put it in, treasure, pearl, net, we understand he's talking about truly lost people as as he's picturing it here. So he says, depart from me, cast them into into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in. Naked and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto you? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, insomuch that you did it not 
to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away to everlasting punishment, righteous into life eternal. There's not a single place in the teaching where we would ever say that's the salvation message. That the way you come to Jesus, the way you come to be on the right and live eternally with God is based on how we treat one another. Now, yes, we should treat each other well. I can teach this thing from somewhere else. But the connection here is, remember the chronology. We're talking about Jesus coming in his glory. And he's going to be dealing in that moment with those who have been alive during the seven years of tribulation and who they align themselves with. Did they align themselves with those who were coming and preaching and teaching Jesus? Or did they align themselves with the Antichrist and refuse to take care of these who were preaching and teaching Jesus? the Messiah. The world will be heavily populated with people who will have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, the Messiah, Jew and non-Jew alike. This doesn't necessarily speak of the Jews. It speaks of saved and lost coming out of the tribulation. And I believe that's what it's being described by this great net, this same separation. Chronologically, it's in the right place, spoken of in the right time about the tribulation because Remember, he came to the Jews. They rejected him. At Pentecost, he established the church, the beginning of the church age. The end of the church age is the rapture. We begin the seven years of tribulation dealing with the Jews. So it puts the treasure, the pearl, and the net in the same order as we find in the book of Matthew and other places. A little difficult to get your head around, but I've heard this passage used dozens and dozens of times talking to the church about how we're supposed to treat one another. That we're supposed to see those who are naked and clothe them and that we're supposed to find the hungry and feed them. Well, for me, I can't preach that. To me, there's real danger in preaching that. What I can preach is if I see someone who is hungry, pursue the Holy Spirit and say, God, is that mine? Because if I just went off this... Everyone hungry would be my responsibility. Everyone in prison would be my responsibility. Everyone described here would be my responsibility. My responsibility is to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit gives me in response to this need. Are we going to feed the poor? Yes. Are we going to clothe people? Yes. Are we going to visit people? Yes. But we do it in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and not because it's commanded in the Scripture. I've just heard the scripture taught that this is the responsibility of the church to go do this. It's not true. It's the responsibility of the church to be obedient. And when we're obedient, God will release a supernatural reality to clothe people, to heal people, to touch people, to feed people. That's what we see in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. That act of obedience released something supernatural. Not hard work, which this would create. This is the stuff that drives mission trips. This is the stuff that drives inner city ministries. Not necessarily of obedience. Just go do it because here's the command to go find those people and to do this. Yeah, we're, you're going to find believers, faithful believers, trusting believers right there in, in many of those lines doing many things in missions. But the unique difference is going to be not because we were commanded here, but because of the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We move in obedience and watch him do the supernatural feeding do the supernatural clothing, and he does it. Max shared with us this morning of a, of a young lady that was at the concert, and she was leaving. Uh, he asked her a couple of questions, and 
she was supposed to go have schedule schedule surgery on her foot, I believe. And she had a boot on. And he just asked her, so would you mind me praying for you? And as he prayed for her, he just said the Lord just allowed him to speak healing over her. He said because he didn't have a real good relationship with her and wasn't where he could just go and ask her, he just waited. The Holy Spirit said, wait, she'll come to you. It took a while. It's been two or three weeks. And she came and she said, Max, I forgot to tell you. She said, I went to the doctor the next morning and there was nothing broken, perfectly healed. Absolutely had to do nothing more. She said, I, just, I forgot to tell you. We see these small but amazing things. And strangely, instead of it becoming the celebration and the anticipation of bigger, we kind of frame it in something small. It doesn't build faith. It creates more questions. These things are designed to build faith without trust, without borders. There will be many who will be affected and saved. You know, the Bible's real clear that's going to occur. The main thing in this teaching is to realize that you have to get it in the right context. This is Jesus coming in all his glory. This is the church age over. This is the seven years of tribulation. He's dealing with tribulation saints. He's dealing with the rejection that will come in the tribulation for, for many who will receive and many who won't. But we can read in Revelation what's going to happen to those who won't take the mark of the beast. That's, that's not a pretty picture. And that's what he's describing here. But when we read Revelation 12 and we come to the end of that, it's very clear who these saints are. Let's just end there. Let's go read it and then we'll just conclude with that. Revelation. Try Revelation 7. So through about uh, verse 8, it talks of all the tribes in the 12,000 that will come out of each of the tribes of Israel. Let's go down to verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, addressing John, since this is actually the revelation of Jesus, I would say probably even addressing Jesus, he says, What are these, or who are these, which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And he said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more. See from Matthew 25, they were hungry. They will hunger no more, thirst no more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. I believe he's talking there about the tribulation saints, those who came out of great tribulation, but who did wash their robes. You notice it didn't say their robes were washed for them, which is what happens to us. They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. They came by faith and trust and accepted the truth. You see, that's what all this is about. The seven years of tribulation is 100% about accomplishing the six things that we find in, in Daniel chapter 9, of which none have been accomplished in the previous 483 years, the bringing in of the Messiah. There are six things very specifically mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 that are going to happen in this 490 years, and the first 483, none have happened. So all six have got to happen in the last seven years. The Great Tribulation is 100% about God the Father winning the heart of his people so that they'll believe that his son is the Messiah and be saved. 
You see, he never changed the plan. It's Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So it's very much about convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah that he was, that was, he was promised to be. Some will believe, many won't, and they'll be destroyed. The ones who will be are being described, I believe, at the end of Revelation 7. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there is so much more that we don't know. But I thank you, Lord, so much for the understanding that you do give us. The clarity with which you speak and bring revelation about this difficult scripture. And Lord, I pray that that what you will do is that which other people teach, what I teach, what other people have written. Because we continue to pursue you in the spirit that you will show us the agreement between what we believe and not the difference. Because there's great unity in the teaching. We just don't have the the complete spiritual eyes yet to see it. I just ask, Lord, that instead of saying someone is wrong and standing with boldness on what we know and rejecting everything else, that we just simply come before you saying, Lord, I'm grateful for what you've shown me so far, and I'll keep my heart, my ears, and my spirit ready as you continue to teach me those things I need to see, need to hear, need to know. And, Lord, we just thank you for that tonight for the teaching that you bring and the way that you bring it. In Jesus' name, amen.